You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Our first scripture reading comes from Psalm 75 and can be found on your pew Bibles on page 487. And as always, if you do not own a Bible, please feel free to take one of these Bibles home with you as a gift from Redeemer. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine mixed well, and he pours it out, he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. The word of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Our gospel reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 46. You can find it on page 851 of your Bible. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little way farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, 
Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. You may be seated. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that, um, that as we think on these words of Scripture, that we would be a people, individuals, a community whose hearts are wide open to the things that you have to say to us, and that we would indeed, as we've been singing, say, yes, Lord. And so would you speak to us, Father, Son, and Spirit, in these words, and help us to know how we might be a community that inhabit them. In Jesus' name, uh, amen. So we're, we're nearing the end of the summer series, and, you know, Redeemer's tradition is to be in the Psalms every summer, and you just pick up where you leave off one summer after the other, right? We've, we have this Psalm, and then we have 76, and then you won't see 77 until next year, right? And I, you know, when Dan asked me if I would fill in, I was very grateful for the opportunity, and then I, but I'm thinking, you know, I've I've been a minister for a long time. Surely I've preached these before, right? And I could just tweak something. No, none of the things that I was assigned have I been able to tweak. It's all new stuff, right? And, and I'm like, that's good, okay, that's good. But then I'm like, today, I'm like, but Dan, I'm preaching on judgment. Like, come on, I'm a visitor. I don't, I don't like judgment. And most of us don't like judgment, but if we're really honest, we are also judgy, right? We all find ourselves in that spot. I don't like judgment. I'm, uh, I'm an Enneagram nine, if you know what that means. And it means I have a pathological attachment to peace. I wanna hold all things together. I want the tensions to be there and live and robust, right? So here we are in this hard topic of judgment. And I wanna just say right off, a little bit apologetically, that the theme of judgment is a hard topic, and it's hard for the church too. We don't handle this topic very well. It seems to me we drift in one of two directions, right? We either steadfastly avoid it for all the reasons that you can imagine. It's uncomfortable, right? We sort of background it, and we foreground other things, and we really are secretly hoping, I hope judgment disappears, and I never have to talk with this about, about this topic with a friend, right? Because it's uncomfortable. We don't know how it fits into or maps on to the love that is God very well, right? We get lost in that. Or on the other extreme, there are those people that just like to talk about judgment. <laughs> like we, we, some of you go there more naturally than others. And the church sometimes leans into conversations about judgment that feel creepy. I mean, I think we just need to be honest about that. It feels, we feel like we, we talk about judgment in a way that sounds vindictive. Or we talk about judgment in a way that sounds hateful. We talk about judgment in a way that rather than alleviating fear or moving people beyond fear, it actually seems to cultivate more fear or even anger. So let me tell you a story. This is a true story. It's a little bit of a lame illustration, but it helps. 
right before the pandemic, like this, the Christmas before the pandemic, before all life got weird, there I am in Philadelphia. That's where our family lived at the time. And in the center city of Philadelphia, which is the neighborhood, a particular neighborhood, if you know Philly at all, and it's, a, it's more of the sort of affluent neighborhood. It's where a lot of shopping happens and stuff like that. So I'm, it's Christmas Eve, and I'm over there in that neighborhood shopping, right? And I walk by one of the parks. It's a lovely park, Rittenhouse Square. It's absolutely stunning and beautiful. It's particularly beautiful in the winter because there's things in the trees. It's really quite nice. And I hear a voice crying out from the edge of the park. It's a mic'd voice. There's an amplifier by the voice. And the voice is shouting out the most vindictive and mean things to sinners passing by. There's a man, a street preacher, who is calling attention to every imaginable sin that he particularly hates. You can imagine, they're the sexual sins that are being called out there on this Christmas Eve. And I sort of stop in my tracks, and I'm, I'm there, friends, there are even snowflakes, I think, falling. And I think, what are you doing? Don't you know? that the voice of the angels to the shepherds on Christmas Eve is not a shout of condemnation, but fear not. Because I bring you glad tidings of joy because today is born a savior who is the joy of the world. And I, I am enraged, I'm judging of this man who thinks he's proclaiming the gospel. I'm angry at this man. Enneagram nine, out the window all of a sudden. Now look, both extremes, our tendency to avoid and background judgment, but also our tendency to, ex to sort of fixate and then distort judgment in a way that doesn't actually map onto the life of Jesus very well. Both of these things don't, aren't an adequate expression of judgment. They don't take us into a deeper understanding of what judgment is, and they certainly don't take us to Jesus. They miss him. Now, we wanna think about that this morning, um, and we're using Psalm 75 to think about this topic because it's the dominant theme in this psalm. You recognized it as we read it. Uh, Psalm 75 is an interesting psalm in that it, it's sometimes thought to be a part of a triplet of songs, right? It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a little tiny series of the Psalms of Asaph, right? Lane introduced the Psalms of Asaph with Psalm 73, which, by the way, is one of my favorite psalms, and I did not get to preach on it. But there in that sermon series, right, as you, you begin to understand as you're thinking about the Psalm of Asaph, that first one, Psalm 73, that it's a moment when this leader of Israel's worship is sort of in a space of doubt. And Lane did a beautiful job helping us sort of explore what doubt sometimes looks like, especially when we look out on the world and it looks like the life of non-faith is dominating the scene and winning is actually a lot more palatable than all the hard work of holiness. And then Lewis took the next one in the triplet, right, of Psalm 74, helping us think through in a time when life is falling apart, that beautiful word, calamity, that one of the things that we need to be praying in that moment desperately is that we would remember that God is king even if 
it looks like he's not. And then today, we are led into this hope for the Christian who's suffering through a psalm that helps us understand how judgment, the judgment of God, maps onto hope, gives us hope in the space of our own suffering. Um, and there's an interesting notation if, you're, if, you read, if you were reading in the Bible, the actual sort of pew Bible, you know, at the time, and the notation right under the psalm is, you know, this is a song that's meant to be sung by the tune of Do Not Destroy, which is kind of a weird tune to think about when you're talking about judgment, right? So it auto- automatically, we ought to clue in and think, maybe where my mind most naturally goes with judgment isn't the place the psalmist's mind went. But there's this appeal, this tune, I wish I knew what it sounded like, Do Not Destroy. So I wanna think about three things with you this morning, security, judgment, and the blessing of God. Now first, security. So imagine yourself, you're on vacation in Hawaii and the wildfires begin to rage around you. You're in Maui. And so all that is common to your life, all that, even in a vacation moment of delight, it's just erased, it's wiped away. I want you to think about what is it like for you to taste exilic reality? Like you are an exile. Most of the commentators think that these Psalms were written, of these three at least, were written in a period of exile. When Israel's sort of ordinary way of being human and being faithful to God is just kicked out from under them, it's gone, it's erased because they've been hauled off in captivity in an unjust captivity. When you experience a reality like that, and most of us aren't experiencing it nearly in the extreme of our friends and neighbors in Maui this morning or of or of people in a war-torn area or of refugees that have landed in a refugee camp. We're not experiencing exile like that. But you do know what it's like to suffer. And you do know what it's like when all that you hope for in life, all that makes you feel calm and stable and secure and at ease in a place of life has been challenged, has become vulnerable, has been ripped from you. So think about that experience for just a moment as we think about this particular psalm. You see, in that moment, God says these words in in verses two to five. This is where the psalmist moves from a space of general worship, beginning to rehearse themes of judgment to where we hear the divine voice itself. And what God says to his people in that space of worship, in that moment of exile, in that moment of suffering is, it's me. I'm your security. It's me. I'm your security. It's not whatever power you observe in the world that has just sort of ripped something from you. It's not the power that seems to be calling the shots that is not God. It's not even the peace that you thought you had when life was going well. God says it's me. And that's one of the most important things that a people that are suffering need to be reminded that God is your security, and here's how the psalm expresses it. This idea of the earth shaking, right, and the pillars of the earth. God says, I'm the one who steadies the pillars. I do that. The nation you've been carted off to doesn't do that. I do that. 
the tragedy that's come into your life doesn't steady or unsteady the pillars. I steady the pillars of your life. Only I judge rightly. That is, I judge in a trustworthy and a reliable manner that is always just, always just. God's justice doesn't lead to further injustice. God's justice doesn't lead to more oppression. It only leads to a place of peace. Now, here's a challenge. In the modern age and in a secular environment, scholars will say things, sociologists will say things like this, that we live in a historical moment when it's just so easy to not believe in God. His voice is obscured. We are not sure of his existence. We forget his existence. And that's true. And it is amplified in our day, but it's an old problem. Listen to how C.S. Lewis describes this in Mere Christianity. He describes the fallen condition of human beings, right? Our, Our experience of the brokenness of sin. He says that what Satan put into the heads and the hearts of our first ancestors is the idea that we could be human and godlike without God. In other words, we can discover a happiness that doesn't include God, isn't dependent on God, doesn't need him to be anywhere in the vicinity, that it's possible to invent a life of happiness outside of God. And out of that lie comes human history. So the history of how we live with money, it draws out of that lie, right? The history of how we sort of experience abundance in its absence, so poverty erupts. It comes out of that lie. The history of human ambition, it draws out of that lie. The war, stories of war, um, class, classes and the sort of inequalities that we experience in life. Um, empire, slavery, and you just could go on and on and on with any chapter, with any segment of society, ways in which we experience the profound brokenness of the world and life because this lie that it's possible to do it on your own and discover a happiness that has no attachment to God whatsoever. Where do you look for hope? Where do you try to build security? Is it drawn out of that lie in some way? Or is it drawn from the God who is? Psalm 75 takes us to hope itself because it takes us to God himself. And the hope that God is a certain kind of God and he's a God who will act Injustice. And what we mean by that is that God is a God who judges the lie and all of its deadly, horrible consequences that play out across generations and are still playing out in our own lives, even as Christians sometimes. Our hope is that one day God will say, Over. The full weight of the lie just topples fully into the unreality that it is. The lie that we can find happiness without God. The psalmist here calls that kind of posture in life as arrogant. He describes it as those who brag, right, uh, about what they're doing and what they're accomplishing. Um, He uses this weird metaphor, lifting up your horns against God. And you think, well, what does that mean? And I think, I don't know what that means, but it's weird, right? It's simply a metaphor and a way of sort of talking about that we all have a generative power and a responsive power in our lives and we lift it in one direction or the other. 
And here, it's lifting it away from God toward the lie that we just have no imagination for life with God. And that's the world in which we inhabit. And in exile, for the people that are suffering in some profound way, what they feel like is the most true is that the lie is one. And God is nowhere to be seen. And what this prayer does for us is it recalibrates heart and mind and body with the truth of what is ultimately real, and that is that God is still at work in history, still at work beneath our stories. And even if we're in a really crummy chapter that really stinks and you really wish it weren't your chapter, God is still moving your story forward with his own. His kingdom will endure forever. Blessed be God whose kingdom endures forever. We say it every single week to remind and recalibrate our hearts. So security, where is it? Second, judgment. As I said, no one likes to talk about judgment and we really don't like judgy people, right? You don't like being in a situation where you feel judged by some, someone. They've sort of tried you in the court of their own heart and mind, and they've dismissed you as a person. They've relegated you off to the side. You're not right, I am. Often the way we see judgment occurring inside of human beings, and sometimes even the way the church talks about it, is we only lift up those qualities that we value in ourselves and we diminish someone else's story. We're not curious about it. We become judgy about their stories. And that's how we approach them, and that's how we enter dialogue, just like my friend in Rittenhouse Square that day. A day when it would have been so much more inviting and people might have been even so much more open to hearing, yes, there is hope because God came into the world. See, judgment abounds in our world and in our society. We take a stand in some space, and we judge those who are not with us. We do this politically. Uh, we do this culturally, we do this economically, we do it with content of race, we do it with the content of ethnicity, we do it with whether you're from the north part of the country or the southern part of the country, right? I remember when my family was absolutely shocked that I was actually going to move to Satan's territory, New York City. Judginess, we're always taking refuge in some identity that we think makes us somebody. Our judgments just lead to culture wars. And we're all frustrated with the culture wars, I think. Cancel culture is a frustrating reality in our day. It diminishes the possibility of even having a real authentic conversation. But the invitation of God is that we would enter a conversation. See, however judgment often gets played out across these postures that you and I adopt, right? These are judgments that extend oppression just in a brand new direction. It doesn't really bring about peace and contentment and joy and flourishing. But God who judges rightly and justly does. Verse six, the judgment in view within this psalm is not the judgment of another group. And we know that because it said, it's not from the east and it's not from the west and it's not from the wilderness. In other words, your hope for things getting right 
can't be socially or geographically located in some human group, whoever they are. And that's true politically, and it's true, you know, it's true nationally. God is saying, I'm the source of justice, and I'm the source of the justice that you need. You need a justice that comes from God. It comes to us. It's not something we create for ourselves. Verse 8, a very important verse in this particular text, in this particular set of prayers, because there the, 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 the metaphor of the cup comes up. And I want you to think about this for just a moment. There's this cup, this chalice, if you will, in the hand of God. And it's filled with foaming wine mixed with spices. And the cup is poured out on the wicked and they drain it to the dregs. You could read a verse in Isaiah or Jeremiah. The prophets talk about this very same cup, this imagery, right, of God's coming judgment of what's going to happen. And, and, and the, the wicked are going to drain it to its dregs. Now, look, it is intentionally an unappetizing metaphor. Um, no sommelier that you encounter is ever going to say, I got some foaming wine with spices. Want to try it? Never. We're meant to hear this, and it's meant to sort of move us into a space of utter sobriety so that you sort of hit pause and you begin to think, well, what, what's going on here? What is this cup that is going to be poured out? We're meant to wake up to the reality of what's happening in the world and in our own hearts in this particular moment. Come back to Lewis's statement about the lie. C.S. Lewis, as he completes that idea, he simply says, look, God can't give you that lie. It's not a real choice because it itself is an unreality. Here's how he expresses it. He says, God made us, God invented us as a man invents the engine. A car is made to run on gasoline. He didn't understand about, you know, batteries. And it would not run properly on anything else. God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn. And the food our spirits were designed to feed on, there is no other. That is why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own particular way without bothering with religion. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. And you see, what the psalmist in 75 is reminding the people that are in this space of suffering is to the worshiper, and really to us this day, is that there's a sense in which we are all living on a kind of borrowed time. We're living in this space where God hasn't allowed us, as a matter of his mercy and grace, by the way, to taste the fullness of that cup, the fullness of that choice, the, the, the reality, the effect of that lie. We're in sort of a pause moment where we can wake up in sobriety and say, no, God is real. God is our ever-present hope. God is the one I must delight in. I must say yes to him. Most of the time, you and I aren't eager for judgment from God. We're not eager for this kind of moment. We're not eager for it to, us to end up in that ending, right? So just think, right, this week, 
someone in your community or network of friendships had a baby. And it's usually a moment when you just, oh, so gorgeous to sort of behold the face of a newborn child. And, and you th- I, I wanna treasure this moment forever. It's a moment when life is kind of working for you in a way, right? Or, you know, you're in a job promotion and life's sort of going well for you vocationally. You're not thinking, boy, I can't wait for God's judgment because you wanna enjoy the fruit of your labor a little bit more, right? That's how most of us are living. But if you've ever had the knees kicked out of you, if you've ever had your legs kicked out from beneath you in some particular way, all you can cry out in that moment is God have mercy, please put things right. And while most of us sit in a place of tremendous peace this morning, we live in a world where so many people don't. And the cry of their heart is the cry of this psalm. God, put it to rights. Finish the project. Bring the kingdom. We can't figure out a way forward unless you act. And the psalm takes us into that space by reminding us that whatever chapter you're in, a chapter of blessing or a chapter of struggle or a chapter that feels hopeless, God is still working his story beneath the surface of your life and you belong to it. That's what he's telling the community of his people. And it's an occasion for us to wake up and to live in the reality and even to explore ways in which you and I still live the lie. I mean, what is discipleship except staying with Jesus in a way that tomorrow I say, oh, I didn't see that Jesus, the way that I'm living against the grain of your world. And then next year, it's some other issue entirely. Or the next day, I'm back in last year's issue because that's the nature of what it means to be human. And so we're constantly doing what? Confessing our sin and hearing that the Lord absolves us and confessing our sin and hearing that he absolves us and gathering to his table because he reminds us that we belong to him, to the story he's telling. Security, judgment, now blessing. The psalm ends with this really wonderful declaration, a very simple declaration and decision on the part of the psalmist in which he does say yes. Verse nine, but as for me, I will declare this forever. He's talking about remembering judgment, right? Finding hope in judgment. He says, I will sing the praises of the God of Jacob. Now, often when we see a phrase like the God of Jacob, we quickly remember that God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And there's a sense in which we're meant to understand that all of those saints that have gone before us, they persist in the very presence of God. They haven't just evaporated into non-existence. But think about Jacob for just a minute, the patriarch Jacob. He's an interesting patriarch to mention in the context of this psalm, Because what do you know about Jacob's life? He was a deceiver. He was one who constantly manipulated blessing. He wasn't anyone who trusted that God was the giver of blessing. The whole of his life is this space of deception. And it's all there in the scripture for you to read about. It's really ugly, folks. And yet... What is happening for Jacob over and over and over again as he seeks to build his life out of the lie that you can find a happiness that doesn't come from God, that he can build for himself? God just keeps showing up. God meets him. God comes to him. 
There's the beautiful vision of the ladder, right? When he's sleeping on the rock, right? And, and he has this image, this vision, this dream of a ladder that comes from heaven, which the direction, by the way, is really important. It's not a ladder he's built to heaven. It's a ladder that drops from heaven. And he discerns that the angels of the Lord are descending up and down on his life. It's a tremendous shaping moment in his life. Doesn't mean he stops and gives up the lie because he holds on to the lie. The story isn't over. And then there's that beautiful moment at the very end of his sort of journey, his sojourn out of his father's household when he's returning to his homeland. And it's in that moment that Jacob goes off and he wrestles with the Lord all night long. And in that beautiful space, Jacob gets to a place where he cries out, it's your blessing I need, not the one I can get for myself. Bless me. You, Lord, bless me. I need what you have to offer, not what I can give myself. And it's that place that I think the psalmist has landed us in a space where we become the persons to the tune of do not destroy, who hold out our hands and say, yes, Lord, from the bottom of my soul, bless me, your blessing. We know from Jesus's comment in the Gospel of John that he understood the latter to be himself that Jesus himself is the ladder stretched from heaven, God's world and place of residence that's largely invisible to us and that stretches to our world, earthly life, visible life, earthly existence, the connection between the two that they meet in the person of who Jesus is. And in our gospel reading, there's this stunning moment in the garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying about his coming death. And yes, it's an it's an unjust death, we know that, because nothing about his life ever merited death in any way. But here in this moment of prayer, Jesus imagines a cup. And I can't help but think that it's the cup that the psalmist is speaking of, or that Isaiah speaks of, or that Jeremiah speaks of. And that Jesus is about to drink the cup of the lie that you can find a happiness without God to its dregs. He is gonna take the full weight of its effect into his own being and experience death. Nothing about the Son of God ever, ever embrace that lie in reality. And that Jesus says, I will drink it if it's your will. Eugene Peterson comments on the space of Jesus's willingness to take on suffering and specifically in the context of this psalm. And he says, the cup of foaming wine is finally grasped firmly by Jesus and drained to its dregs. When the deserving wrath of God is drunk by the undeserving son of God, the cup of wrath becomes the cup of our salvation. And so in this space of worship this morning, when we've been remembering the kingdom promised and we've been remembering our own soul's necessity of saying yes to God, and in a moment we come to the table and we take the cup into our own lips, right? And we remember that Jesus's words to us is yes, you, 
you belong. I'm with you. Whatever's going on in the chapters of your life, connect the dots of it to the truthfulness of how God is for you and with you to deliver you from the lie. May God give us grace to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.